Good morning, Kavanaugh. How's everybody? You good? Fantastic. Give the praise team another big hand. They did such an awesome job. I'm glad you're here for the second service. We've already done this uh, once before at 9 o'clock. And you know what? They, they really were, were a good congregation. They, they listened. They said amen at the right time. But I know you can do better. Amen. amen. So glad, man, I'm, I'm glad you're with me right there. Good deal. Hey, this is sermon number eight in my series of parables that Jesus spoke throughout the Gospel of Luke. The last few weeks, we've been right here in Luke chapter 15. Uh, there are three parables that are given, and uh, Jesus tells us about uh, the most distinctive characteristic about God, and that is God is looking for lost people. If you are away from God, God is looking for you, and he is longing for you to come back to him. Uh, we learned that in the very first parable about a uh, hundred sheep the shepherd had. One of them got lost, and so the shepherd went out looking for the one lost sheep. Uh, parable number two, the, the lady who had ten silver coins. She lost one coin in her house and literally turned that house upside down looking for that lost coin. It's funny, this past week, Angie lost her cell phone, and she said, give me a candle. I'm going to turn this house upside down looking for my cell phone. You can relate to that, can't you? And so when the lady found the coin, she, she threw a party. Here is parable number three, and it has to do with the same thing. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And last week we introduced this parable, and we talked about this boy leaving home. So here's a father who had two sons. And the youngest son came to his daddy one day and said, Daddy, give me my part of the inheritance. Now, usually a father didn't uh, disperse the inheritance, or it wasn't dispersed until after the father died. This boy wanted his before his father was dead. And so the father obliged. He gave him his part of the inheritance, which would have been two-ninths of the inheritance. The boy didn't stay around long because the money was burning a hole in his pocket. And so he got on his Camelac and went down to the far country, and the Bible says he wasted all of that money on wild living. And then all the money was gone, a famine hit the land, there was nothing to eat, he had no friends. And so the Bible said he attached himself to a citizen of the far country. The guy didn't even want the young man around, so he gave him a job to go to the back 40 and feed the pigs. Now this is something pretty difficult for a Hebrew boy to do. He had to go feed the swines. And the Bible said he was so hungry, he would gladly have eaten the carob pods that the swine were eating. I'm telling you, this boy hit rock bottom. Last week I said his chin hit the last rung of life's ladder. And you might think, well, oh no, how terrible. No, it wasn't terrible. It was a good thing because the Bible said he woke up and he came to his senses. And he said, you know what? What am I doing here? The hired servants back at my daddy's farm have a better quality of life than I do. So I'm going to go back home to daddy. And that's where we pick up in today's passage, Luke chapter 15. We're going to start reading in verse number 18. He said, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as one of your hired servants. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long ways off, the father saw him coming, 
Filled with love and compassion, the father ran to his son, embraced him, and literally covered his face with kisses. His son said to him, Father, here's his rehearsed speech, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servant, Quick, go into the house and get the best robe we have and put it on his back. Put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. And by the way, go out and kill the calf we've been fattening up. Hmm? We must celebrate with the feast. For this son of mine who was dead is now returned to life. He was lost, but he's now found. So let the party begin. Come on, let the party begin. There you go. That's the response we want, and they celebrated. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take the words of Luke chapter 15 and let them come alive in our heart. Lord, I'm going to try to speak it on the outside, and I know that your Holy Spirit can speak it into our hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who is away from you, I pray that today they would come home. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. It was in Chicago. It was a Saturday afternoon in April when the red BMW was found near a police precinct station. It had been ransacked, abandoned. The engine was still warm. The credit cards and IDs of the two people who had been inside were found around it. And it looked for all the world that these two people had been abducted and gone. For there was no trace of Carolyn McLean, age 22, or her boyfriend, Scott Swanson, age 23. They were students at Wheaton College, that renowned evangelical northern university. This led to a three-state search, which went into weeks and then even into months. With no sign of their disappearance, most people gave them up for being abducted and gone. But then four months later, on July 26, at her parents' house, they received a letter postmarked from San Diego, California. Eight pages written on pink stationery in Carolyn's own beautiful penmanship told the story. The students had decided to elope, and so they assumed names moved to Mission Beach, California, and were living in a $400 a month converted garage apartment. You see, they had read a book entitled Severe Mercy. It's the story about this couple who decided to build this shining barrier of love around them that would keep everything from the outside coming in to destroy their love relationship. And even though it sounds great on the outside, it wasn't too great once they did it. In fact, the reality finally set in. And they realized that life wasn't good. Living without identification, living without their parents' credit cards, living without family support, with unending deception and unending hard work, seven days a week, ten hours a day, working menial jobs for minimum wage, they found quite another reality. In fact, Scott himself became very jealous, and the tension became so great that it was about to destroy their new, fresh beginning together. 
In fact, the misery became so enormous that it left them with only one thing to do, and that was to go home. And so they rode home. Their parents, good Christian people, were somewhat bewildered and baffled. Wouldn't you be bewildered and baffled? Yet they received them back with love. You know, last week we left the prodigal son in the far country like that. Like that, causing him to come to his senses. Living in abject poverty and misery woke him up. And he said to himself, you know what? I think I'm going to go home to my father. We decided that his mistake was in this. Deciding that the essence of life was getting away from the heavenly father. I could really live life to its fullest if I were out from under my father. And so he ran away. I noted in so many words that sin doesn't always begin with badness. You follow me here? Sin doesn't begin with badness. Sin begins with apartness. When we turn our back on God and we think the essence of life is being away from Him, that's the apartness. The badness follows. And I'm telling you that there's plenty of badness. Scott and Carolyn's motives in coming back home were not entirely pure, they were broke, (laughs) they were living in misery and in pain. But it was good, their parents said that they turned their faces toward home. So how does the father react when we decide to come back home to him? Church, you need to understand that God is better than any earthly father that we could ever imagine in this regard. God is better. No matter matter how good an earthly father can receive their wayward children back, God's better than that. I remember hearing the real-life story of this uh, teenage boy. It's a modern-day prodigal son story. He decided he wanted to, to leave home, and so he left home, and he went from town to town spending all the money that he had on wild living, and he finally ran out of money, didn't have anywhere to go, no one to turn to. And so he finally decided, you know what, I'll call the Baptist preacher back home because I know the Baptist preacher knows my dad, and I'll ask him for advice what I should do. And so he called the Baptist preacher back home, and the Baptist preacher said to the boy, oh son, you need to go home. I know your father. Your your father will love you. Your father will welcome you home. Your father, and he quoted this passage, your father will kill the fatted calf for you. So come on home, son. So he came home. A couple of months later, the Baptist preacher saw this young boy and he said, son, how was the reunion? Did your father kill the fatted calf? The boy said, no. But he about killed me. (laughs) Jesus dares to tell us that God is better when we come home to him than any earthly father that we could ever imagine. Just think about it. If, If you've been away, if you've left home, think about the tension when you come back to the one that you have been alienated from. Are they going to rebuke me? Are they going to insult me? Are they going to beat me or treat me with a cold shoulder or are they going to welcome me and how the father receives us back when we come to him is the heart of this story this story really answers two questions 
about how God reacts when we decide to come back home to him. The first question it answers is this. How does God receive us when we come back? Church, you need to understand the, the Father's actually watching for you to come back. He wants you to come home so bad, he's watching this morning to see if you're going to come back to him. How do I know that? Verse 20 tells me. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. That little phrase, while he was a long way off, is the same word used to describe the far country. It's as if the father's peering vision extended all the way to the swine's trough in the far country. This father saw him. In fact, this father was actually waiting for his son to come back. Have you ever noticed that both fear and love can sharpen your vision? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been awakened at night out of dead sleep? You heard something in the house and you thought there was an intruder. Raise your hand. Have you ever been there? Man, adrenaline starts pumping, you get all jacked up, and your vision sharpens. You can see things that you wouldn't normally be able to see, like when you stumble to the bathroom during the middle. You know, your vision sharpens. It's also true with love. Remember looking for someone that you love in a big crowd? It seems as if all other faces recede into the backdrop until you see the, until you see the face of the one you love. And then all of a sudden that face shines in the forefront. Love you, babe. Both fear and love can sharpen the human vision. You know that. You also know that animal, animal vision, it, it varies. A, a hawk can see a dime lying on top of the Empire State Building. A frog can't see a bug until the bug moves in front of it. A kingfisher is a special kind of bird that really has two levels of vision. One vision looks at the water above the surface of the water. The other vision can see just below the surface of the water. We know how human and animal vision varies. But do we understand the vision of God himself? Jesus said that the heart of the nature of God is in this actual watching for us to come back to him. That is the truth of the two previous parables in Luke chapter 15. When we leave the family of faith through our own stupidity like a, a sheep that wanders off, God is like this shepherd who searches everywhere looking for the one lost sheep. Or perhaps we're lost out of carelessness like this lady who lost one silver coin. Jesus said, God the Father is just like that lady who will light a lamp and literally turn her house upside down looking for that which is lost until it is found. So church, please understand this morning, the most basic thing that we can say about God the Father is that He is looking for lost people today. And if you are away from him, he is longing for you to come back. That's how the father receives us. The, the father feels deeply when we return to him. Look at verse 20. He was filled with compassion. That word compassion literally means tender pity. In other words, 
His heart went out to meet his son. The word itself refers to the moving of the viscera. That is our internal organs. There was something that physically moved this father on the inside when he saw his son coming to him. Jesus felt that way. In fact, if you just go back a few chapters in Luke to Luke chapter 7, we read the story of Jesus going through the village of Nain. And as he approached Nain, he saw this funeral procession. It was a a woman, a widowed woman. She had already lost her husband, and now she had lost her young son. And so the whole village had gathered, carrying this boy's body to the cemetery. And this woman was in great grief. And Jesus saw this widow of Nain, and the Bible says in Luke 7, 13, when he saw her, his heart was overfilled. It overflowed with compassion. His viscera moved. And in our parable, this father felt the same way. And so what happened when the father was moved on the inside? He moved on the outside. The Bible says literally he ran out to meet his son. Woo! Man, go daddy, go. I I would have done the same thing, wouldn't you? But, But we don't understand the same culture Jesus was speaking to. That was unheard of in Jesus' day. An aged man never ran. It it was beneath him to run. He, He would, even if he was in a hurry, he would never lose face to run. But here, throwing caution to the wind and cutting across cultural grains, this father ran out to his son. And in telling this story, Jesus shattered the prevailing Hebrew idea of God. This prevailing Hebrew idea of God said that God wants nothing to do with the sinner. God stays as far away from the sinner as he can. And if you will come back and grapple with penitence and on probation, God might, just maybe, he might receive you back. Jesus shatters that. And Jesus says, no way. That's not how our God is. When you make a move towards him, man, he's running towards you. Come on, church. Amen. The father receives us, number three, tenderly when we return. He ran to his son. He embraced his son. And then what did he do? What did he do? He kissed him. Literally, literally, he covered his face with kisses. Now, even more than in our world, this was a sign of forgiveness and and restoration. Um, You know, we we just think of kissing as whatever you think of kissing as. In, in, In ancient culture, men would kiss the cheeks of other men as far as a greeting was concerned. Or even here, fathers would do that to restore their children. In fact, anthropologists have tried to figure out where the custom of kissing came from. Now, we would be inclined to say, well, dude, it's just something you do naturally. Yeah? It's romantic. Well, that's not always the case. In fact, until the period of world exploration, half of our world didn't even know what a kiss was. The first time a Western explorer 
kissed a tribesman of New Indies, that tribesman ran away in terror thinking that the explorer was a cannibal. Some anthropologists say that kissing came from people watching birds feed each other. <laughs> I don't think so, but that's what they think. Still others say that cavemen originated kissing. That, that is, they would lick the face of others needing the salt that was on their face, and it simply led to experimentation. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Roman historians say... That Roman women were prohibited from drinking wine. And so when their husbands came home, they started this custom of kissing their wives to see if they had been tipping the bottle. <laughs> it, it, it may be difficult, yea, impossible to discover the origin of the human kiss. But let me tell you this, church, it hardly ever had a higher significance when in this story, this father said, I reinstate you, and I hold you at eye level, and in kissing you, I tell you that you're my son, and I love you. Welcome home. The amazing thing is the father does all of this before, before his son said a single word. This means that there is nothing in God that should cause us to hesitate in coming back home to Him. There are no grounds for reluctance regardless of what you have done or how long you have been gone. Because God wants to receive you home. The second question this answers is, how does God treat us? How does God treat us when we come back? Well, I, I think it teaches us four things. God reacts with eagerness. When we come back home to him. Verse 22. His father said to the servants. Quick go get the best robe. And put it on his back. Put a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet. It's interesting. This father did not even let his son. Repeat the memorized and rehearsed speech. That he came up with. Back in verses 18 and 19. Only two thirds through that speech. This father interrupts his son. And showers him literally showers him with gifts and festivity. There were no rebukes. There was no probation. There was no test for genuineness. There was no word that you have to prove yourself. The father did not say, you know, you know, son, before I, before I reinstate you, there's going to be a thorough investigation of all that you did in that far country. No, there was none of that. There was not even any humiliation. He interrupted him with a word of absolute forgiveness. And he did it just like that. You know, isn't that just like God? In fact, in James chapter 1 verse 5, it says that God upbraideth not. That's interesting, isn't it? That's old King James, but it's a good, good way to say it. He upbraideth not. What does that mean, preacher? It means that God doesn't throw it back in your face. Wow. He forgives us quickly and absolutely. This father of the parable didn't say, You know what? You know what, kid? I knew you were that way. 
In fact, way back when you were just five years old, I knew you were going to do something like this, so I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and I put it in the desk drawer. Here it is. Look at it. He didn't do that. He didn't say, I told you so. <laughs> Ooh, boy. He didn't say, your, young, your older brother and I have been speculating on all that you've done in the far country. No. No, he didn't do that. Why? Because God upbraideth not. God doesn't throw it back in your face. Amen. One of the reasons some of you are staying away from the Father is because you're just, you're just too embarrassed to come back to him. You don't need to be embarrassed because God forgives completely and he does it quickly. God reacts with generosity when we come back home to him. You know what? All these things done for this son were done out of love, not out of necessity. He could have come back on probation. He could have been received back with reserve and coldness. He could have been welcomed back with this sedate private ceremony. But you know what? The Father does more than that. Listen to me, church. God does more than what is necessary when He reinstates us. It's kind of like His salvation. Salvation is more than mere pardon and an embarrassed reception back into the family of God. No, salvation is everything God has. It is justification, making you just as if you had never sinned. It's sanctification, setting you apart and making you holy. It is adoption into the family of faith. It is the gift of of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. It is the church. It is resurrection. It is heaven. Amen. And we don't deserve any of that. But God does more than what is necessary when he saves us and when he restores us. God reacts with dignity when we come back home to him. I've been quoting verse 22. It's a, it's a great verse. The father said to the servants, quick, go into the house and find, find that, that best robe that I have hanging in my closet. The prettiest one. The one I use on special occasions. And you take that robe and put it on my son's back. You go into the safe and you get the best ring that I have in my safe. The signet ring. You put it on his hand. You go and get the best sandals. That new pair I bought for him not long ago. And you put those on his feet. All done for the son. You know what this means? It means that the father is treating the son with dignity. Let me just break it down. Put the finest robe on him. The, the son received this long stately robe worn by nobles on state occasions. You know what? God honors us with the best when we return to him. Galatians 3, 7. It says we put on Christ. God will take the garments of sin and he will replace those with a robe of dignity. Put a ring on his finger. This was a signet ring, and it indicated a person of authority and standing in a king's house. God does more than just tolerate us as a slave. No, he treats us with dignity, and he places us in authority in his kingdom. Put shoes on his feet. Let me tell you, shoes were the mark of a son. In those days, slaves didn't wear shoes. 
You put the best pair of shoes on my boy. That's my boy. Cover his feet with shoes. All of these gifts symbolize both possession and freedom. Far from holding us in contempt, God floods us with these tokens of adoption into his family. He gives us dignity in his kingdom and responsibility in his household. Woo, baby. And if that's not enough, God reacts with celebration when we come back home. Verse 23, you go out and you kill the fatted calf because it's time to have a party. There was only one fatted calf, and it was reserved for special occasions. It said, nothing like this has ever happened before. We are going to celebrate. Really, the, the center of all three parables in Luke chapter 15 rests on celebration. Remember the one lost sheep? The, the shepherd went out and found the sheep, and, and when he had found it, they, they celebrated, they have a, had a party. In, in verse number 7, it says, In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over ninety and nine others who don't need repentance. And then in the parable of the lost coin, after the lady found the coin, she threw a party and invited all of her neighbors. Jesus said in verse number 10, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And then here in chapter 15, verse 23, it said, we must celebrate with the feast for this son of mine was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost. And now he is found. Guys, this is incredible. Really, when you blow this up to the size of the canvas of the universe, it is mind-boggling. What is it? What is it that cheers the hearts of cherubim and seraphim and angels who are fiery and burning? What is it that catches their attention? What is it that causes all of heaven to celebrate? Is it when a new galaxy is born out of cosmic gases? Is it when a star explodes and becomes this supernova in the heavens? No. No. Jesus says there's, no, there's absolutely nothing in this world or this universe that causes the celebration in heaven like one sinner who repents. Or like one person who walks away from God and then decides to come home. There is more celebration in heaven when that happens than anything else. It's party time. Let me tell you, heaven throws a party when a lost person comes home. Would you do something with me? Would you help me as we contrast this, this young man just from the, the middle of this parable to, to today, from last Sunday to this Sunday? I mean, what, you tell me, what could be a bigger contrast? Here's, here's this boy in a far country. He's wasted all of his father's money. He's half naked. He's half naked living out outside in a field. He's living with pigs. He's longing to eat the carob pods that the pigs were eating. Why? Because he had no resources, no friends, no family. He was on his own, half naked, starving to death in misery. That's him right here. 
You contrast that and compare that to that same boy who is now over here back home with his daddy. His daddy's given him a bath. He's put the best robe on his back, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. He's now pulled himself up to the father's table and he's eating the fatted calf. Half naked, starving to death, alone, dying. <laughs> Woo! It's over here to party with daddy, and everything's good. Let me ask you something. Which one would you rather be? If you're over here, ain't no reason for you to stay over there, friend. There's no reason. Jesus spent an entire chapter of the Bible telling us if you're away from God, He's waiting for you to come back. He's looking for you to come home. He's longing for you to come back. So if you're here this morning and you've never been saved, you've never called on the name of Jesus, would you turn your head towards God today and receive His gift of salvation? If you're here, but your heart's away from God, you know, that, that's a possibility. You can be right here in the house of God, never miss a lick on Sunday mornings, but your heart be far away. If that's you, dude, come home. Stop living with the pigs and start celebrating with the Father.